Win stacks of cash by entering the 150K Crack the Code giveaway. Brought to you by your local paper, now through July 14th. Look for the code on page A2. Then visit 150kgiveaway.com and submit your entry. You could win the grand prize of $100,000. Grab the paper every day. Get the code on page 2A and improve your chances to win tons of weekly cash prizes. Visit 150kgiveaway.com for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Strip Search, the comic strip podcast. It is July of 2019. I'm Pete Chianka. I am not here, as usual, with Dave London, because Dave is on vacation. He's on the top of a mountain in Maine somewhere, like one of those wise people you climb up a mountain to ask questions. Um, I wouldn't advise doing that with Dave, but if you feel like trying it, uh, head to Maine, and you might be able to catch him. And meanwhile, I am preparing to leave on vacation as well. I'm taking a cruise with the family at the end of the month. Never been on a cruise before. Basically, everything I know about it is from movies, uh, Titanic, Sign Adventure, Speed 2, all the classics. And as a result, we did not have time to get together to tape a new episode of Strip Search. But we did have time to pull some of our greatest hits. Interviews with some of the best comic strip artists working today. We've talked to many of them, and actually the hard part was narrowing down which clips to use for this particular special edition of Strip Search. We hope you enjoy the ones we chose, and if your favorite wasn't included, never fear. We'll be sure to get them into the next compilation episode. I'm sure we'll be doing another one before long. In the meantime... Check out Comic Strip Cartoonist Magazine, our favorite magazine about cartooning and comic strip. You can find a link on our website, petpeevescomic.com, to find out all you need to know about that. And also, don't forget to check out the Pet Peeves book, collecting 400 Pet Peeves comic strips from 2016 to 2018 by me and drawn by Dave London, of course. You'll find a link to that on our website as well, petpeevescomic.com. And now, let's get in to our special edition by revisiting an interview we did in December of 2017 with Mark Parisi, the cartoonist behind Off the Mark and the Marty Pants book series, talking to us about that book series and how it's different from what you do as a comic strip cartoonist. Listen in. You were talking before about how cartoonists have had to find ways to spread out and do do different things. And and last time we talked, you mentioned about this being sort of a you know a burgeoning market. Yeah, it's um, called a it's called different things a hybrid book or um, I basically just call it wimpy kid style book because um, right. Jeff Kinney kind of defined the whole the whole genre. But it's basically um, a chapter book that is um, half text and half cartoons and usually funny and so i had seen those uh books in uh bookstores and thought wow that would be a fun if i was going to do a book it wouldn't be a regular text 
Well, not textbook, but Pro, pros, book, pros, chapter yes. book. Yeah, prose, because I don't want to write that much and I don't want to draw oh, an entire book either. But this was like back and forth. It looked like it looked fun. But I didn't have an agent. I didn't know how to actually do the process. Like, do I have to write one and then find out <laughs> no one wants it? I could, the whole idea just seemed like a good one, but I didn't want to actually take the effort. <laughs> but then I got an email from a children's editor at HarperCollins said, hey, have you ever thought of doing a won't be kid, Timmy Failure, Big Name? Like, yes. <laughs> and so I started sending him chapter um, chapters and he gave me feedback and I sent more chapters and it took maybe two years until I um, had the book done and uh, which is I think different than the way most people do it because usually um, you'll have an outline, I think, first few chapters, instead of actually writing the entire, because I didn't have a contract with him, basically. He was just giving me feedback, and then I had the book written. Right. And so then, after the book was done, he started going through, um, he would have to show it to uh, what the publisher, and then the editorial board, and then acquisitions, and that type of thing. And he came back and said, Congratulations. You have a three book deal. And I was like, Yay. And I'm like, What? Three? <laughs> I have to do two more. <laughs> so uh, it was very exciting because I didn't know. He didn't say right out, um, you know, this for a three-book deal. I thought it was one, and then if that does well, okay, we'll do two. So um, it was it was very exciting to know they wanted to commit to a series right. and terrifying because I didn't know if I could do it again. I felt like I put everything, all my ideas, everything into this. And then, oh, you have eight months to do another one. And um, so actually the other one's coming out um, February 6th. Terrific. Uh, Marty Pants. Um, uh, keep your paws off. Yeah, I actually forgot the name. <laughs> and number three is underway, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's, done. that's pretty much done. It's in the editing process. And that that was murder to, to write that one. Really? That was behind deadline. Yeah, I was. Well, because you're promoting the first book now. And trying, and I assume we're trying to finish the third yeah, book. There's, you're, they're, uh, like the first one. Uh, I'm still doing promotion on that. So basically, yeah, you work on all three books of one aspect at the same time. So you're like writing one, editing one, um, promoting one, and then things will come back at different stages and also doing the cartoons. And, uh, you know, it got overwhelming for a while. And I, I, I just didn't know where I was going with the third book. I felt like, okay, the first book went somewhere. The second book went somewhere. Now what? Now what book three <laughs> supposed to do? And uh, so it was very, very uh, rewarding to actually be able to finish it. Now, in February of 2018, we got a visit from Sage Stossel, who is a terrific cartoonist and illustrator, and you've probably seen her work in The Atlantic and the Boston Globe, among other places. And she talked to us about the work she was doing for The Globe and how writing prose didn't quite cut it for her, but when she combined her illustrations with the topic she was trying to cover for The Globe, that's where the magic happened. Here's Sage talking about that. For the stuff that you've been doing for The Globe, that's more of a... Um it's a really sort of unusual combination of text and, and cartoon, and they give you a lot of space to do it. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, it's kind of like a word picture essay almost, and um, it's a little bit... Uh, well, it's interesting how that came about, that I do that. It was actually... Um, I had been at the Atlantic uh, for a little while and I was doing a certain amount of editing and coding and all sorts of things. And I thought, oh, I should, I should really be trying to try my hand more at writing. And um, 
somebody that I had used to work with had gone on to the Globe, and someone said, oh, why don't you pitch a piece to them about this cartoon convention that I've been talking about going to? And so I did, and I got this assignment to write a piece about covering this cartoon convention. Um, and then when I went, the piece was due pretty much right when I got back, and um, it was one of, like, you know, so there have been so many panels and interesting people and everything that I got done back I had to write the piece and it was just like I didn't have any idea like where I was going with it so I just started basically typing like okay maybe the editor can help pick something out of this brain dump that I'm doing and then you know no there was nothing salvageable in it um and I kind of just wanted to be put out of my misery like oh well you tried but one of the other editors said well you know she's a cartoonist and she went to this cartoon convention like what if she did it as a cartoon and I thought well all right I'll I'll try. And then when I did it that way, it kind of fell into place. So I did it with multiple panels, kind of walking you through, um, you know, some things that had been discussed and things that had taken place and, uh, you know, leading to some sort of little summing up panel at the end. Um, and when I did it, uh, it was well received. And they said, oh, uh, Marty Barron came by our office and commended us on our creative covering of this. <laughs> cartoon event so then they were excited about this and I was excited that I could actually like set out to do this on purpose instead of like fall back when I fail at trying to do something else so then I after that I started trying to keep my eye open for you know things that I could maybe try and cover like with words and pictures and it was in September of 2018 when we sat down with Shelley Paraline and Braden Lamb husband and wife illustrators and cartoonists from Salem Massachusetts right in our backyard here at Strip Search. And we talked to them a little bit about what it's like to work together as the husband and wife illustrator team and how their style changes depending on the project they're working on. Here's what they had to say. Uh, well, I, I find it kind of interesting because it, it kind of depends on the different projects. Yeah. I, I feel like our, our style is really, you know, depends on, on the project. We'll, yeah. we'll uh, like for for making sense, we went we went with more of a, like you know '60s you know uh, animation um, UPA or uh, advertisement Hanna Barbera kind of yeah. kind of look. Yeah. Uh, all the Adventure Time stuff looks looks more or less like the show, but with a little bit of our our style. And One Day a Dot is way more sort of graphic, kind of mm -hmm. Charlie Harper ish. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the fun part about, like, we always say that we, we spend a lot of time on development when we are um, starting in on a project, probably more so because we're trying to get, like, on the same page stylistically, mm -hmm. and then we also feel a little bit like stylistic, like, chameleons, mm -hmm. and sometimes, like, to, good or bad, you know, mm -hmm. because sometimes when you're referencing something, you know, like the, like the 50s and 60s, like, styles you're right like, oh, you don't want to don't want to ape that too much you, don't you want wanna, it to yeah. still feel mm -hmm. like something kind of fresh and original mm -hmm. a little bit but we but love yeah. to have fun we love to put energy mm -hmm. like color and we like little mini stories like within each illustration within within each like freeze frame so yeah. that's our that's our thing so let me ask you uh as a uh team and I, I know you folks are married, your husband and wife team, mm -hmm. but generally, a lot of times as teams, you sometimes have artist and writer teams, but you're both artists. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you break up the duties? Who does what? It kind of depends on the project, mm -hmm. we'll, but we'll usually both sit down together and work on a, a thumbnail or a rough for an illustration. 
uh, both sharing the same computer, but with you know two different inputs. So we'll kind of bounce back and forth and get the mm -hmm. the right kind of whatever kind of idea will make that illustration or image work best. And then after that, the different steps, uh, especially in comics where there's penciling and inking and coloring, those will just kind of go back and forth. Usually, I tend to do. Uh, most of the pencils, Shelley does most of the inks, and I do most of the colors. But again, we we participate in all the different yeah, steps, we do. all of us. Yeah, and it's nice. But even like, even when we're just doing an illustration, we'll like kind of toss it back and forth. Like nothing's mm -hmm. ever truly finished. There's a little bit of background work, or there's just something that like actually is someone's strength that will like kind of toss back. Will you do that and? Like, and if someone has developed a concept art for something, like mm -hmm. a, a background or whatever, they'll be the person to kind of fill those things in. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Not, not every couple would say that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about the, the process. It's great. It's, I don't know, but comics are just like, they take a lot of time. And it, there's a lot that you, it gets kind of grueling too. Like you're really looking at the same thing like over and over and you're doing mm -hmm. like a repeated process of getting to a finished thing, so it's nice that someone else is there to kind of like spruce it up or just kind of feel yeah, like to, it's... to sort of take it off your plate for yeah, a little while. That's true, too. That'll, yeah, that'll let you mm -hmm. uh, work on another thing, yeah, especially when we're doing an uncompressed amount of time. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, and, well, and, I have and to is call there another way? Today. It's always yeah. <laughs> a compressed yeah. amount of time, uh -huh. yeah, um, which is good. That means somebody mm -hmm. is waiting for it, yeah, and mm -hmm. you know, we'll pay you for it when you're done, mm -hmm. which is you know, yeah. a, a nice uh, way to work. It was in October of last year that Dave and I paid a visit to the Massachusetts Independent Comics Expo in Cambridge, and that was awesome. And the best part was we got to sit down with Keith Knight of The Nightlife and various other comic projects. And he is uh, definitely somebody who is in tune with what's going on around us politically, socially, and in all sorts of other ways. And he had a lot to say about how this can be sort of a dangerous time for cartoonists and creative types and how he uses his talent and his platform to address the way things are in the world today and in our country. Listen in. I've been on panels with cartoonists who had to leave the country because their, their government was going after them for a cartoon they did. So. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm fortunate that it's not gotten to that point here yet, but, um, you know, if the way things are going, it wouldn't surprise me if it did. It's it's a scary time for artists, journalists. It's, it's you know, and I hear this from a lot of people. For everybody. Yeah. For everybody. I think not only, not only for people who are, are direct victims of this, but also the indirect reality of people who never consider themselves to be racist mm -hmm. or fascist, but are looking around and justifying what's going on and saying to, to themselves, oh, okay, maybe I am fine with this. Maybe I don't want any of this taken away, even though none of it will be taken mm -hmm. away. But, you know, if you scare people enough saying, oh, you know, this caravan of people are coming to, and they're going to come and they're going to take your job. You right, know? right. It's such silly bullshit. Oh, oh sorry. Could, no, absolutely. You could 
so I guess so then what, what what becomes your role then? So you see all this happening and you sit, you sit down to the to the drawing board. Well, I, I think there's a number of different roles that you could take. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have a stage, have a venue for me to get my stuff out. But everybody does. I mean, you know, that's what the internet's for, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, but I suggest not arguing with people on the internet. I, I suggest arguing with people in person, <laughs> you know, and just like addressing this stuff in person because. The internet is just a, a hole of, of bullshit. Um, I, I just know that, you know, when you engage people in person, they're not as cruel. Uh, and you can you can discuss things with them. And they actually might actually think about it a little bit longer and, and more thorough. And people say, what can I do? I can't do anything. But... I got a Facebook message about a year ago from somebody I went to college with a long time ago, like 30 years ago probably. And she said, you know, Keith, uh, I just want to say that when we were in college, I was telling a, a joke that um, that you point, you know, you explained to me why I didn't think it was funny and why it was offensive. And she said, you didn't do it in any, like, angry way. You didn't, t- you just explained it. And she said, I, you know, I never thought of it that way. And it made her reconsider, like, all the jokes that her family would say. And she started calling people out on stuff. Yeah. She says, now, like, she's got, you know, she, her kids play with all these kids of different races and all this different stuff. And she said, like, she said that, that changed me, that, that one time that you that you said that to me and you know I was probably stoned at the time <laughs> but that but little stuck thing with her. yeah that little thing stuck with her and, yeah. and so you don't know like you know everyone always talks about oh I can't say anything to my racist granddad because uh, my racist aunt <laughs> if you said something to them they may be pissed they may you know I, but they'll think twice about saying that again, at least in front of you. And they might, even if it's a little bit mm-hmm. of a change. And and that's the thing is, the most obnoxious, terrible people are the loudest people right now. And the good people have to start being loud mm-hmm. too. And I know it's against our nature, <laughs> but it's to be, and you know, we have to be louder, mm-hmm. frankly. We have to be louder. It was in February of this year that we got a call from Pat Sandy, one of our favorite cartoonists of one of our favorite strips, Next Door Neighbors, which is distributed by Go Comics. And it's if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and look it up. It's a hilarious strip about a guy you would not want as your next door neighbor. And we talked to Pat about how creating and developing this strip was a long process going back many years and how he manages to make some uh, kind of distasteful characters uh, appealing in their own right. Here's what Pat had to say. I have to say, I probably, I took my first crack at it in the late 90s, probably the early 2000s. Same name, same name of characters. It was a Norm Dewey guy, you know. And it got, it made the rounds at the syndicates, got some nice responses, but, you know, close but no cigar and all that type of thing. And then uh, later on, probably about the, Five years ago, I got the desire to revamp it, and it kind of is what it is today. But most of these characters were kind of put together a number of years ago, so I've sat with them for a while. 
And the, the thing I love about the characters, I mean, they're just very quirky. And, you know, you have oh, the, yeah. the, you know, the dad is sort of this lazy slob. <laughs> you got, <laughs> you know, his mother, who's this crazy cat lady. And, um, yeah. you know, but they're still lovable, you know, I, I think. So how do you well, sort of achieve, you, yeah. achieve that balance when you're sort of developing these characters by not making them too over the top, but just, just crazy. Well, I gotta tell you, I mean, there's, uh, this sounds terrible given the nature of these characters, but there's a lot of me and my family (laughs) to say this, but there's a lot of us in this. And I I think, you know, there's so much of my life and my family in it. It's really, it's, it's terrible to say something like that, given how repellent these characters (laughs) can be at times, but they are lovable. You know, I mean, is what it is. I don't want to live next door to Norm Dewey, but, uh, but the thing is, is there's a, a lot of my life in them. So, for example, Dewey was my grandfather's nickname, and that's what everybody called him. So, I mean, it, and it's such a fun little name, so I use that. The grandmother, Vera, the, the cat lady, is very, and I stress loosely, based on my mother and my grandmother, kind of a hybrid type of thing. So, and I, God bless them and all that type of thing. I mean, they were, they, my mom was really the, uh, she had a lot of cats. She wasn't obviously as, you know, she wasn't Vera level, but there's, there's like a, I guess my point is, there's a grain of truth to a lot of it. And truth is sort of uh, what people relate to, you know? Oh, absolutely. So, I, I could definitely, yeah. you know, they're sort of doing some of the things that we would like to do if, if. If oh, we had sure. fewer social graces well, than that, we do. That's the central that's the central conceit of Norm. I mean, again, to reiterate, my mom was, you know, in no way, shape, or form like Vera, but I mean some of the stories that I've done around the Vera character are actually pulled from my own life. There was a, a couple of years ago I did a bit where one of the cats got up a tree. And that did happen and my brother was involved with trying to get the cat down and all that kind of stuff. So I pulled from, you know, real life in that regard. But um you know, there's there's a little bit of grain of reality to a lot of it. And I think Norm was sort of designed as that guy. Nobody wants to live next to that guy in the neighborhood. <laughs> and we all know of that guy. <laughs> Some yeah. of us may even be that guy. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I mean, my thing was is that, you know, I guess this was the, the original idea was how I, it was more fatalistic than anything, I suppose. But... You know, how can you come up with a character that is not, you know, family circus type stuff? <laughs> you know, somebody who is the anti-dad in comic strips, you know. Right, right. And he's certainly not father of the year and all that. But I think as I got into it, you start going around the horn with all the repellent neighbor jokes. And after a while, you dry up. And then you have to start to pull from your own existence or your own life. And suddenly the humanity starts to come into it or the, the real nature of the characters, I suppose. So it was this past March when Dave and I took a trip down to the Million Year Picnic comic book shop in Harvard Square, Cambridge, to talk with the shop owner, Tony Davis, librarian, Liza Haley, and graphic novelist, Jonathan Todd, about the upcoming Boston Kids Comic Fest. But we also talked to Jonathan about his upcoming graphic novel from Scholastic called Timid, about well, not his life, but a character very much like him and about race relations and what it's like to be the only black kid in class and about some of the other things he faced growing up in the Massachusetts region, which is not always as liberal as people make it out to be. Here's what Jonathan had to say about Timid. Yeah, well, it's um, kind of inspired by my upbringing uh, right, about, uh, right, right around here. My family, we lived in Boston when I was a kid, but during 
like from like second grade on to sixth grade. I lived in, in Miami, Florida. And then uh, I came up around middle school. And um, so in Florida, I was, I, for the last few years, I was, I was basically the black kid in, the, in, in my grade. And so, but yeah, I didn't feel any different from all the other kids. But then when I came up north, I just felt this real like racial segregation. And it just really, I was uncomfortable with it. And mm-hmm. so I, like things like, you know, I didn't know where to sit in the lunchroom, like, because all the black kids were at one table. And then I mm-hmm. thought, well, it just, just felt weird to me yeah. coming into that situation. So um, it would, it took a while to like really, um, a number of years to like kind of, kind of get this idea of like warming up to the black community and just, and so it's, so it's about that inner struggle mm-hmm. um, and finding identity that the book's about but it's um so it's it's based on my life but it's not it's not a memoir by any means but it's but cecil is a lot like who i was so mm-hmm. that's the general theme of of the book yeah no that sounds uh, terrific i yeah. mean and it you know it's just so interesting because yeah. this area is sort of considered so progressive and, yeah. and liberal yeah but it also has this very sort of distorted history when yeah. it comes to, to race relations that absolutely you know, a lot that still needs to be worked out yeah. clearly so t- can you tell us about your process? What what uh, materials and techniques are you using? Okay, so just the art or the writing too? Or... Just the art. I don't care about the writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, um, for the graphic novel, what's nice, it's kind of my favorite stage, is the thumbnailing skate stage where uh, for people who aren't familiar with comic books, I, I liken it to like the storyboard phrase of a movie where you just have small drawings of what the whole story is going to look like. So I love that phase because, you know, it's, you get, you're, I'm really loose and you can just, um, you can just lay out uh, how a scene is, you can change it. And so, um, so that's kind of the stage I am now. I just submitted, I recently submitted like actually a, a th- full thumbnail of the book, but, a- and then my editor gave me feedback and said I needed to like make some, make the pacing slower. So, um, it, it took a while to do the second revision. Um, so now she gave me feedback. And so now I'm ready to go to the final inking, the final stage. But so I'm going to redraw the pages nicely and big and um, and then ink with a brush. Number one, uh, Windsor Newton, uh, <laughs> nice. Series 7 <laughs> nice. uh, with India ink. And then I do a micron pins for the lettering. Yeah. Well, this interview was just last month, but we had such a good time doing it, we couldn't resist including it in our clip show here today. It was with Will Henry, otherwise known as Will Wilson, who is the cartoonist behind the nationally syndicated Wallace the Brave, a terrific comic strip. And we met him in downtown Boston, had a few uh, sodas, and shot the breeze about what it's like to be a syndicated cartoonist and what that process entails, including a very intense development process that a lot of people don't really know about. Here Will talks about how he approached it and what it meant for the final strip that he launched. So I I had a a comic strip on Go Comics before called uh, Ordinary Bill under my uh, real name, Will Wilson. But... You know, it was, it was a little adult. There was a lot of beer drinking, a lot of drug use, a lot of womanizing. And uh, Wallace the Brave is not that. It's definitely like, uh, it's for kids. So I wanted to separate the two comics, which is why I changed the, uh, the pen name. Or, you know, went under the pen name Will Henry. When I submitted to the syndicates, um, I wanted to make sure they were also just looking at it on merit. And not, you know, we have a prior relationship, which is another reason why I went to the pen name. And 
from the beginning, I, I wanted to make sure that it was going to be in print syndication because I just didn't feel like doing the online thing. So even when it was online at Go Comics, you know, it was building towards the eventual launch, which happened about a year ago in March. So that's kind of how it worked. You know, I, I you know, I worked with the team over there to develop it, and um, you know, once we felt it was solid enough, they, they started t- talking about like, a launch date, and that's that's kind of how the process went. You know, just just working behind the curtain putting it out to the audience. I think what they do is they, uh, you know, they release it online to kind of help build ammunition when they try to sell it to newspapers. You know, right. you know, it does this well online or, you know, we have this book which does well. This is why you should buy it. So that was the process of okay. getting it out there. Now, how many days a week online was it running? It was running, it was running three days a week online, but I was writing it daily. So, uh, you know, in the development contract with AMU, Andrews McNeil, um, you know, I, I, I was still didn't secure the deal. I was writing it, but didn't secure the deal. So I wanted to make sure that they knew I had the chops to do it. They only requested, I think, 15 roughs a month. But I was making sure to give them, you know, a, a month's worth every month. Just so they knew that I could keep up. And um, you know, I, I didn't want to be ignored, I guess, was, was the, uh, the goal. And I don't think people necessarily realize how much, you know, there, there is a process of development. I think people think... You draw the strip, you send it in, they say this is great, and it's in the papers the next day. Boom. With, with, no, with no changes and no no input. But it's really the opposite of that, right? It's the opposite, yeah. I think I think I was in development for about three years, but the whole process from submitting the uh, I don't know, submission was, was probably a four-year uh, endeavor. And I, at the time, it was, I don't want to say frustrating, but it definitely felt like you were, you know, spinning the gears not getting anywhere. But now that I launched in syndication, I can see all that hard work I did behind the curtain is, is paying off. You know, I have a lot of backstock. The characters are way more developed than they would have been two years ago. So, uh, you know, thank you to the company for making me, you know, pace myself. <laughs> making you honest. Making me honest, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no slacking on. Well, that's it for our special summer vacation version of Strip Search with London and Chianka, featuring some of our best interviews from our previous episodes. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with a whole new original episode in August, we promise. And in the meantime, visit us at PetPeevesComic.com for past episodes, to find out about our comic strip Pet Peeves, and to buy our book. We'll see you next month.